The sermon text this morning is from John, chapter 10, verses 10 through 15. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I imagine you've seen those shirts, uh, Life is Good. They kind of have a cool script to them, a lot of nice colors. Uh, it just simply says, Life is Good. And it kind of begs the question, though, what's so good about life? I mean, it, it's kind of a fundamental question that we all have. I mean, what is a good life? I mean, nobody wakes up, nobody lives their life thinking, I want to have a bad life. I mean, we want a good life, but w- what is a good life? How do you get it? Well, you know, this is the second week in Advent. We're trying to answer the question, why did Jesus come? And one of the reasons, at least today, we see we came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He wants us to have a good life. Now, it'll be interesting to see how Jesus defines a good life versus how we may define a good life. So with this text, it's a beautiful little text. I am the good shepherd. And he just really answers two questions. What is a good life, and, and how does he bring it? So what is a good life, and how does he bring it? Those are just two questions we'll answer. Uh, first, what is a good life? Look with me at 10.10, because in the first verse that we read, he says, the thief comes to kill and uh, to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now, you see here that there's a warning and a promise in the one text. There's a warning. There is a clear and present danger. There is a thief. And then there's a promise. There's a promise of hope. Now, who's the thief? Well, a lot of people think the thief is maybe a bad life or on, you know, poor health in life or troubles and trials in life. Kind of steal the abundant life. I don't think that's it at all. I think the context would argue that the thief is actually the religious leaders. It's the false shepherds. If you were to read the whole story in context in chapters 9 and 10, you'd find there's this man that was born blind, and Jesus heals him in chapter 9. And he heals him by by making mud and putting it on his eyes and telling him to go and wash. And and a, a man that was born blind can now see. Well, the Pharisees get wind of this, and instead of recognizing that when the Messiah would come, The blind would see, they just were caught up in the fact that he made mud on the Sabbath. And so they said, he's not the Messiah, he's a sinner. He's not a man from God. And so, and yet the the blind man actually says, you're the son of God. And it says in chapter 9, 38, that he worships him. He worships him. And so the thieves that we're looking at here are actually these false teachers that are stealing from the people the glory of the Messiah, the teaching of the Messiah. Uh, preparing them for the Messiah. Uh, They were stealing from them and leaving them to be destroyed with a false religion. 
It's a warning. The thieves come to steal and kill and destroy. You know, many times I think we, we think that the greatest threat to Christianity is atheism. Atheism isn't, a, isn't the threat to me that it used to be. Atheism promotes a life without God. So you've came from nothing and you're going to nothing, but you're supposed to have meaning in this life. I, I don't think that sells well. I don't think that works. Others think that hedonism, hedonism is the threat to Christianity. Hedonism is a little bit more tempting for me. I mean, it's the pursuit of pleasure, gimme, gimme, gimme. But I think hedonism tends to run out of its own steam. It tends to die of its own weight. You know, when you're hitting 30 and then 35, you begin to wonder, I, I can't get satisfied anymore. The same things that satisfy me don't satisfy me anymore. So it kind of dies of its own steam. Now, I, I think the threat to Christianity, the thief, is a false gospel. It may be a gospel minus or a gospel plus. It may be a, a gospel minus in the sense of, yeah, you, you want to believe in Jesus, but, but we don't make that much over sin. Sin's not really that big a deal. But when you minimize sin, so do you minimize the necessity of the cross. You don't need the cross anymore. You just need Jesus and, and, and to try as good as you, you can. Uh, the gospel plus is, is just as dangerous, just on the other side of the street, uh, you've got to believe in the gospel, but you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. And, and what that does is it diminishes the beauty of the cross. You know, that, that Jesus said it's finished, it's done. You're not adding to his work. It's a perfect, sufficient work all by itself. So in, in this warning, do you see the importance of good shepherding, good leadership? I mean, it, it's a threat to the church. You know, this is why Paul tells Timothy in his first letter, he says in chapter 4, he says, Keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is this essential understanding that right doctrine, you know, Carl Truman is a modern-day theologian, he said the gospel is insufficient. The gospel needed a church and leadership to preach it and declare it. It's not that the gospel is not sufficient to save, but the gospel can be twisted and turned. Shepherds are needed to help keep the gospel, to preach it purely. That's been the greatest threat to the church over the centuries has been false shepherding and false teaching. Well, thankfully, Jesus, and, and, and what this does is it robs you of the good life. You think about it. It robs you of the good life. Because if you don't get the gospel right, life won't be right. You're going to be adding things, you're going to be worried about life, or you're not going to be living according to all that he calls us to live, and it won't end abundantly for you. But thankfully, Jesus gives us a picture of what the good life is. And you see it back in verse 9, just the second half of 9. He says that they will go in and come out and they will find pasture. In other words, the good life, according to Jesus, he frames it up in the analogy of if you're a sheep. And it's where grass is plentiful, and water is accessible, and protection is there, and provision is there. So think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He restores my soul. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me, you're riding your staff, they comfort me. It's a beautiful picture of what would be the good life or the abundant life of the sheep. But how does that apply to us? 
How does that analogy of a good life for sheep apply to us? Well, it wouldn't apply in the way that you'll often hear in the TV, on the TV and the prosperity preachers that say that the good life is in an abundance of success or money or wealth or security, or it's in the absence of trials and struggles and difficulties. No, no, the good life can embrace both of those things. The good life is something different. You know, as you go through the Gospels, you see what the good life is according to Jesus. First, it's a forgiven life. It's a forgiven life. You're forgiven of your sins. The guilt and the shame associated with your past has been removed. You've been washed clean. I mean, think about the prostitute last week. You know, the prostitute comes to Jesus and, and confesses, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Uh, you know, some scholars think this is actually Mary Magdalene. And she did go in peace. And, and she did live a faithful life. And she served Christ, supporting him. She was there when he died. She was there when he was raised. And she continued on in faithfulness. She didn't live with the baggage of her past. You can't live an abundant life if, you're, if you have train, you know, train loads of, of sins and regrets and sadnesses over your life. To know that you're truly forgiven, that when Jesus said it's finished, it really was, that your sins in the past have been washed away, that is abundant life. That's freedom. It's not worried about what skeleton's going to come out of the closet. What are people going to know about me? There's abundant life in that, but not just in forgiveness, the forgiven life, but it's also the reconciled life. We've been reconciled to God. Jesus Christ came to reconcile us to the Father. He's come to make peace. We were at enmity with God. You may not have felt that way, but you had transgressed God's law, and he has reconciled two opposing parties. Now, no longer do we live the yo-yo experience of he loves me, I think he loves me, I hope he loves me, I did this, maybe he doesn't love me. We don't have that anymore. We've been adopted. We've been now declared to be children of God. His favor is not going to be lost. It's not hanging, kind of based upon, predicated upon what I do or what I don't do. He's made peace with God. We have peace with the creator of all things. You can't live an abundant life if you're, if you're wondering about where do I stand with God? Are things good with us? You can't live an abundant life that way. We're the fruitful life. The fruitful life is an abundant life. That Jesus Christ has come not just to save you from darkness, but to call you to serve, to engage with God in the reclamation of the world. He's called us to ministry. He's called us to work along with him by his Spirit. This is the fruitful life. An abundant life is serving. I know that's counterintuitive. We think, I want to be served. But the abundance is in striving for the sake of the gospel along with God as we sacrifice and minister to other people. You know, Matthew Henry, many of, I'm sure some of you have his commentaries. He died in 1712. He died at the age of 52. He had already buried a wife, and he buried three of his children. And here's what he says to his friend, a fellow minister, who was with him when he died. He says, you've been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. That's what Matthew Henry said to him. He said, this is mine, that a life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in this present world. We think getting everything we want for us when we want it is the good life. Not so. It's giving and serving and being fruitful and knowing that, that on, on that final day you'll hear, 
you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's an abundant life in pouring yourself out for people. An abundant life is a secure life, is knowing that Jesus Christ has saved you and he will secure you until the final end. You know, just later in chapter 10 of, of John, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Your death isn't going to come one day too soon and it won't be one day too late. That you are secure, no one, no thing, no idea. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. But the abundant life is also the hopeful life. There is no way you can live an abundant life if you don't know what, happened, what happens at its conclusion. Jesus has come to make all things new. He's come so that we can dwell again with God. He's come to wipe away every tear. There's a new order. There's no more crying, death, or mourning. That is what will be ours. We can hope for that. I mean, to not know what is at the conclusion of this physical life would not lead to an abundance of life, but anxiety in life. You know, the whole anti-aging industry is built upon this idea of trying to deny what is just super real to all of us. The idea of trying to fight and deny and push back. God has built within his creation this process that is graciously given to us to ready us to see him the aging of our bodies and this idea of pushing it back through artificial means is just denying the reality of what all of us face so we have to make peace with what happens at the end you can't live an abundant life if it's just you can't see what's out there and think about the world everybody lives ignoring the greatest reality, which is the brevity of their own life. And they try to find abundance and happiness in this temporal, short existence without ever considering what's over there. Does this characterize your life, abundance? When you think about having an abundant life, having a full life, would you think of it as forgiveness and reconciliation and, and fruitfulness? and security, and hopefulness. See, most of us, many of us in Christianity, have kind of succumbed to that bait-and-switch marketing strategy. And maybe it's dressed up a little bit and lost leader. You know, when, when, a, when a grocery store, let's say, will put a few items, maybe a little bit on sale to draw you in, but they hope that you really spend a lot of money on these high-profit items that aren't as good. They're trying to draw you in. It's, a, it's kind of a bait-and-switch this idea that we've, we've fallen prey to thinking that, no, the abundant life is in what I have or how I feel or the experiences that I've had. But, but if you build a definition of abundant life on the vacations you take, the money you make, the financial security you have, all those things are susceptible to deterioration, to loss, to thievery, to breaking down, to being replaced. I mean, you're living precariously, built upon a created order that is meant to fail. It is only upon Christ that we can have this abundant life. So when Christ defines an abundant life, what is a, a good life? It's to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, to be bearing fruit for his kingdom, 
to be confident and fearless in this life because of the security that no one will snatch us from his hand and to be longing with great hope at that life to come. So that's, if you were to ask, what is the abundant life? According to the scriptures, that would be at least part of a definition of it. But how does he bring it? This is where the beauty of the passage, I, I think, just comes alive. How does he bring it? Well, look, he brings an abundant life by coming as the true shepherd. Look with me at verse 11. Just the beginning of it. He says that I am the good shepherd. Now, obviously, he's contrasting that to the false shepherds. But I think there's a lot more going on. There's a much bigger claim he's making here. He's not just saying I'm better than they are. He's saying I'm the good shepherd. So in your mind, you ought to be going back to Psalm 23, where God is that good shepherd. But even more, I think my mind goes to Ezekiel 34. You know, there's a time in the nation of Israel uh, when Ezekiel, the prophet, is condemning these false shepherds the same way that Jesus is. He condemns them for failing to care for the flock. He's condemning because, of, because these false shepherds have been stealing and killing and destroying. And he said, you haven't pursued my people. You've plundered the flock. You haven't cared for them. You've just cared for yourselves. And so Ezekiel is prophesying against them. But then what he does is God actually speaks against the shepherds. And he tells the nation what he will do. In Ezekiel 34, he says these words, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they're scattered. I will bring them out from the nations. I will gather them from the countries, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Do you hear what's happening? God is stepping into and saying, I'm going to shepherd my people. That wouldn't have been a surprise to them. He said he was the shepherd in Psalm 23. But, but listen to what he says a couple of verses later. He says, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, this is really interesting. And if you know your, your Bible chronology, you'd recognize that David had been dead for about 250 years. So it's not David that he's speaking about. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, what he's saying is, I am the shepherd. The shepherd that God has sent to save my people. He's claiming a messianic shepherding role. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's going to come and shepherd his people. So when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying a whole lot with that. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of David. I've come to shepherd my people. There is no one, no thing that you can go to to find an abundant life outside of the true shepherd. Only he can lead you to quiet waters. Only he can make you lie down in green pastures. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Do you see Christ as so central? He sees himself as the shepherd of God, caring for the people of God. 
So he comes to provide an abundant life by being the true shepherd. Think of all the hopes to which you kind of hook your desires to. Uh, it could be government. It could be a relationship. It could be, it could be a vaccine for this pandemic. It could be anything that you're... He's the true shepherd. He's the only one. We pursue him by faith. He's come to provide an abundant life by being the true shepherd, but also by being the true shepherd who lays down his life. Look with me at 11 to 13. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You know, here Jesus now is kind of contrasting himself with these hirelings. You know, people would hire out shepherds, or shepherds for hire, if you will. They're called hirelings. Uh, and, and these were shepherds who would just be doing it for pay. They don't know the sheep. They don't care for the sheep. They don't love the sheep. They're just kind of tending the sheep. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. You know, they're getting wool, and they're getting paid, and the sheep are getting some protection. The sheep need protection, right? They have no defensive attributes. They don't have speed. They don't have claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They have no ability to defend. They need a shepherd. And these shepherds were called to defend them. There was always inherent danger and risk. But never would a shepherd be assumed to lay down his life or to give his life for the sheep. In fact, the Mishnah, Jewish writings on the scriptures, they said that if two wolves attack, it's not sin for a shepherd to leave. It would be silly to give a human life for the life of a sheep. Nobody would expect it. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep, that's incredible. It's incredible. But I want you to notice that, that, that Jesus is giving us a picture of the gospel through the shepherding imagery. He's saying, I lay my life down for the sheep. Do you understand the substitutional nature? This is a central plank in the Christian faith. This idea of Jesus Christ has substituted himself in our place for what? Well, to carry our sins, to bear the wrath of God for our sins. So that God would be just in punishing sins, but he would be justifying those with faith in the one who has come to stand in their stead. So Jesus has laid down his life as a substitute for us, but not just a substitute, he's done it voluntarily. If you look in 18, he says, I lay my life down of my own accord. I mean, nobody took it from him. He wasn't forced to die. Jesus didn't get caught up in some tragic accident. He didn't fall prey to the schemes of wicked men. He laid his own life down. Nobody took it from him. He chose to do this for the glory of God and for our salvation and for our joy. He did it voluntarily. He also did it. He did it successfully. You notice in 18 as well, he says that by my own authority, I lay it down. And by my authority, I take it up again. Now listen, in one sense, you can lay your own life down by your own authority. I can step in a train in front of a train tomorrow and take my own life. I mean, you can lay your own life, but, but we would look at that as wasteful. It didn't accomplish anything. For me to throw myself over some cliff to declare my love for Carol wouldn't be seen as exemplary. It would be a waste of a life. But Jesus says, I... I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Only Jesus can say this. He lays down his life as our substitute, willingly, because he knows that he will bring forth life as a true shepherd. 
You know, Jesus said just two chapters later, he says, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. It'll give life. So Jesus has come as the true shepherd to lay down his life. This is to stimulate in our own soul's affections. I mean, are, are you humbled by the willingness of Christ to do this, to come to give us abundant life? You know, we, we are touched as people. I think we are touched by acts of heroism. I mean, you think about, Carol and I watched a few years back this movie called Hacksaw Ridge. It's a true story of a battle, the Battle of Okinawa, and there's this private first class, true, as I said, true story, uh, Desmond Doss, and he was a pacifist. He vowed not to take up arms, and he's drafted into the military. He's ostracized, he's ridiculed by the other soldiers. And yet in this battle, as part of the medical corps, he saved 75 men. He went into an active field of battle with no protection, retrieving men. 75 men owe their lives to his courage. He received a Congressional Medal of Honor, and so he should have. Now, that moves us. If you watch the movie, you'll be moved by his heroics. And yet here the true shepherd, the Son of God, has come to lay down. If this doesn't move you to worship him, then you need to ask God to open your eyes to see what is so clear. Ask God to, to, to help you that your affections will be stimulated that you'd love him, and that life would be abundant, living in light of this kind of Savior. So he's come to provide an abundant life, both by being the true shepherd, by being the true shepherd who lays down his life, but also by being the true shepherd that really knows his sheep. He knows us. Look at 14 and 15 with me. He says, I'm the good shepherd, and I lay my own, I know my own. Let me say this again. It's too beautiful. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. To say that he knows us. He doesn't know about us, he knows us. You know, the idea of knowledge after the Enlightenment, it became an objective, kind of detached body of truth. It's knowledge. But to the Bible, it isn't detached at all. It's not clinical. It's not academic. To know always has to do with something personal, something intimate. That when he says, I know my own, he knows all about us. He knows us intimately. He knows our fears, our loves, our joys, our sadnesses, our tears. He knows us. See, with the Bible, knowing is belonging. To know something and to be known by someone is to belong to them. He says, I know my own. We are his. So knowledge is not detached or abstract. There's a personal note. He is mine. But what's amazing is he says, I know my own and my own know me. So there's this bilateral relationship where he knows us and we can know this true shepherd. This is where abundant life comes in. And then he draws it a 
as a point of comparison to his own relationship to God, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That is an unbreakable bond of knowledge and belonging. That unbreakable bond between the Father and the Son is now between us and the shepherd. It's unbreakable. Like that, so this. Not perfectly, but truly. It's unbreakable. That's how he knows us. And to know us is to love us. The fact that he knows us is to be of great comfort for the Christian in this life. You can't live an abundant life without this kind of comfort. And, and the reason this provides such comfort is because his knowledge of us leads to our belonging to him and our adoption. This is what Paul, this is the connection Paul makes in Romans 8. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Do you see the relationship that knowledge has to belonging and, and identity? Now we're God's. Now we're God's. This is why David just busts into praise in Psalm 139 when he says, O oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out. You discern my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. To be known by God, to be known by the true shepherd, to never be forgotten, it's, it's, it's not an abstract knowledge. It's a personal belonging knowledge. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes about it. It's an extended piece that I'll read to you, but I think you'll find it worth it. He says this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on a sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. No moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. This is unspeakable comfort. The sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good, there's a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. This is incredible. Not even fading memories will cause God to not know you. John Swinton, in his book on dementia, says, we are not what we remember. That's good. We are not what we remember. We are remembered. To be remembered is to exist and to be sustained by God. Our identity is safe in the memory of God. We are because God sustains us in His memory. The deep fear of forgetting is overcome by the deeper promise of being remembered by God. 
Even death itself will not cause. Other people may forget you, but God will not. He knows you. He'll always know you. You know, there's a terrible problem after World War I to the British Empire. They had many soldiers that died on the field, and they were unidentified. They had no markings. They had no tag. People didn't know who they were. They couldn't be identified. You can't move the country over to France to identify these dead soldiers. And so the suggestion was made to the Imperial War Graves Commission that they would all receive tombstones, and upon them was inscribed, known unto God. That's their identity, known unto God. You can't have an abundant life if you are not known by God. To be known by God is everything. Belonging, adoption, love, never to be forgotten. Your, your memory may fade in this world among your peers, but it will never fade from the creator of the universe, known by God. How do you know that you're a sheep? I asked you this question last week. I want to ask you again. How do you know, though, that you're known by him? Well, you know you're known by him if you know his voice and if you follow him. Jesus earlier in John chapter 17, or sorry, John chapter 10, he says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They know his voice. You know, we want an abundant life. We want a good life. I think we're often tempted to define it in very earthly and temporal and physical terms. That will not serve you well. None of those things are permanent. An abundant life is a forgiven life. It's a reconciled life. It's a, it's a fruitful life. It's a secure life. It's a hope-filled life. And this life has been given to us by a true shepherd who has come to lay down his life, and he knows us. He knows us now. You know, if you're a Christian, Advent is just a time to remember he has come to give us this life. He has come as the greatest gift. The gifts we'll give, let them be faint reflections of all that we have in Christ. <clears throat> and if you're here and you're, you are uncertain, do you hear his voice calling you to follow? That's what Christianity is. It's, it's not kind of a four-step plan to avoid hell. It's following Jesus. That's the evidence of the true life. It's, it's hearing his words and then doing them. Not just learning about the words and what they theologically mean, but it actually means doing them, loving, serving, worshiping, gathering together, offering yourself to others. That's, that's what Christianity is evidence. That, that doesn't save us. But boy, that's the, that's, the, that's the beep on the machine letting you know your heart's actually beating. That's the evidence of it. Let us rejoice in this true shepherd. Let's take just a moment and just, and just thank him that he would come among us, he would die, lay down his life for us, and that even as we're praying to him, we can pray to him, he knows us. Let that perfect love cast out all fear in your soul. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.